Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Road Church. Let's jump right in this morning because the Bible tells us that love, agape, is a person. Part of our text this morning, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God, and he that does not love does not know God, for God is love. That word there for love is the word agape. This is what makes Christianity so totally different from all other religions in the world. Christianity is the only religion where God himself, who is love, comes to live in the heart of the person who places faith in Jesus. This is the expression of that love in dying for us in our place and then, and then again coming to dwell in each of our hearts by faith. There's no other religious system of belief that even comes close to this. There's a precious story that I encountered this week that I wanted to relate to you about a philosopher, a, a brilliant Jewish philosopher at uh, UC Berkeley named Art Katz. And after years of seeking truth and understanding philosophies and studying world religions, Art decided to travel around the world in search of the real God. And as he traveled, everywhere that he went, he took painstaking time, he, he took as much time as he needed to explore all the religions and beliefs that he encountered in any given place. One day while he was riding a train to Frankfurt, Germany, Art happened to be sitting next to a young Christian girl who only a few days prior had become a believer in Jesus Christ, and they began to talk about God. And just a few minutes into the conversation, this pessimistic, snobbish philosopher who had studied most of his adult life sarcastically turned to this young girl, maybe 13 or 14, and he asked her this question, what makes you think that your Jesus is any different from all the other religions of the world? And this young girl, brand new in her faith, paused for just a moment. She looked lovingly right into the eyes of Art Katz and said, because Jesus is God, he is love, and he lives in my heart. Well, this was not at all the response that Art had expected. In fact, it, told him, it, it caught him totally off guard. It, you know, being a philosopher and having studied and debated and wrestled with concepts, this, this was just not something that he was ready for. And he never saw that sweet young girl again, but for months and months, he could not get that simple answer out of his head. Over and over, those words echoed in his mind, because Jesus is God and he lives in my heart. I mean, who ever heard of a religion like that, he thought. Finally, as he neared the end of his trip, he, he found himself back in Jerusalem, Israel, which was his homeland. And while he was there, he befriended a man who secretly was a Messianic Jew, a Jew who found Jesus to be the true Messiah. And after a series of very lengthy conversations with this new friend and some very God-orchestrated moments and circumstances, Art finally found what he'd been looking for. And the God of the universe, who is agape love, just like that young girl on the train had said, that God came to dwell in the core of his being by faith. And Art Katz became a Christian. Real love is a person. God's love can't be found in a church building or in a religion 
or in different philosophies. Love can only be found in a person. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of real love from the Father to us. His love is a love that initiates. His love is a love that maintains that relationship. It's a love that focuses all of its intentions and abilities on the good of the one who is being loved. It puts all its best effort uh, for their interest, for the recipient's interest and their truest needs first. I mean, Jesus on the cross demonstrates that reality more than any other thing, does it not? It's difficult for us. Difficult to think that we could somehow fathom a love like this, that we could somehow produce a love like this in the power of our own strength. This kind of love is supernatural. It originates in the heart of God and it just keeps going no matter what the one who's being loved does or doesn't do. It's not dependent. This kind of love never stops flowing. In other words, there there are no conditions, there are no stipulations which could cause real love to cease. So we say along with John in chapter four that God is love. And John is now going to give us another litmus test as to whether that love is manifesting in and through us as a test of whether we really know God and have received his love. So let's look at the text this morning. First John chapter four, verses seven to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in the world there is no love there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love we love because he first loved us and if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's go back and let's start back in verse 7 and let's take each one just a little at a time as we unpack this together. Beloved, verse 7, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So the commandment is to love one another. And what did Jesus say was the one commandment that summarized the entirety of God's law. He said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And then he went on to say that the second commandment that was summation of God's law was like unto the first because it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And then you'll remember that the lawyer seeking the loophole there asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those that are hated as enemies of God are actually our neighbors. And so at Emmaus Road, we say it like this. We've, we've got a mantra that we say all the time, and it's love God, love people, live generously. And each one of those realities flows out of the previous one. We, we love God with all that we have, with all that we are, because he first loved us. He's poured out his grace in us. He's given us his son, Jesus Christ. How can we not love him in return for this great and precious gift? And then the next one is love people. Well, if we love God, how can we not love people made in the image of God? We're told again and again in the pages of Scripture to love those who are of the household of faith. We're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we're to love those who don't yet know Christ and to love them so as to take the gospel to them that they might respond to the offer of salvation. So if we love God, we'll obey him. And he said to go make disciples. And so then we love people as an outworking of loving God. And then there's this idea of living generously because we look at the stuff that we have in our lives and we go, these resources, well, I could hoard these for me or I could put them to work for the kingdom of God. I could use these to build relationships with people so as to show them the love of Christ and present the gospel to them. Oh, wow, all of a sudden it's like, These things don't have a hold on my life anymore. I'm able to live generously and be a conduit of grace and giving because I love God. And because I love people, none of this stuff matters to me for eternity. God, use it to build your kingdom. So you see how this works, right? You see how we we can do that. Jesus has just summarized the law for this question in the gospel account. How, How can we love God? How can we love God? So backing up from this, right? We love God, love people, live generously. But how does a person love God? Because no one was ever able to attain righteousness by works of the law. And this is an important important distinction because in order to love God, love people, and live generously, we really have to have a new heart. That's exactly what Ezekiel said. God's going to put his spirit in you. We need that regeneration of the Holy Spirit in us in in order to love God. So, So when... Um, You simply tell people who are still in their sins to just love God and everything will be all right. And we know some false teachers who actually preach that way, right? Um, You're actually keeping those people trapped under the law, operating in the old covenant system instead of talking about sin, talking about the need for grace, talking about the need for regeneration, so as to have a new heart and God's Holy Spirit in you so that they can enter into the new covenant. This is this false teaching. Uh, we didn't unpack this in detail last week, but you can see how deceptive and damning it actually is. When you say to people who are lost in their sins, just love God, 
but they haven't repented of their sins. They can't love God. It requires a new heart. So we have to be careful about presenting the gospel clearly. Verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So now this is an inversion of the previous verse. It's the negation of it. This The same truth being restated in a different way. And then verse nine, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So God's love, his character, All of who he is, is most fully manifest in this world, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of other verses here that back that up. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. The author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't miss verse three. He is the radiance and the, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, the exact representation of what God, who is unseen, is like. You can know God through the person of Jesus Christ. John would say this in the first chapter of his gospel, and I'll pull several verses here, not in, uh, not in secession, but uh, chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and that word was with God, and that word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14 says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, Verse 16 and 17, he goes on, he says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the the Father's side. He has made him known. So God's love, his character, are manifest in this world most fully and clearly in the person and working of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in verse 10. John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's love is an initiating love. But let's talk about this word propitiation. Some of you weren't with us several weeks ago when we unpacked this earlier in 1 John. So let me just give you a quick reminder. Um, Propitiation is a word that means sufficient sacrifice. Sufficient sacrifice. It's it's an offering that assuages or satisfies the wrath of God. And so when we talk about propitiation at Emmaus Road, we talk about it in four ways, four words that, that we build, build around this idea of propitiation. We talk about it being vicarious. And that word means that it's done for another person. It's done for someone else. Jesus didn't die on the cross for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. It's vicarious. It's a penal propitiation. It's a punishment. We talk about our penal system, courts and jail and prison, 
That's the penal system. It has to do with punishing crime. And so it's, it's penal. It has to do with the punishment that we rightly deserve because of sin. It's substitutionary. That means that it's done in our place. We recognize that we should have died that death. We should have been on the cross for our sins, paying in our own blood, paying with our own lives. And yet Jesus is the substitute in our place. And then the fourth word, we talk about atonement. That means to cover over. It's a paying of the penalty or the debt of our sins by blood. You see it all through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and that animal blood can never fully pay for the sins of any human being because animals are not of the same value as humans. Only human blood could pay, could pay for the penalty for human sin, and human sacrifice was forbidden. Yet Jesus was fully God, and he gave himself as the propitiation, as the vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement. Now, now this is crazy to me what I'm about to tell you, but there are people today in in the world, in the United States, here in the Seattle area, who call themselves lovers of Jesus, but yet despise this doctrine. They despise it because they think it makes God out to be a reprehensible, immoral, child-abusing monster. And may I just say to you this morning that that is what happens when you do not understand the deadly horror of sin. You don't understand how wretched and awful and insidious sin really is, nor do you understand the glorious holiness of God. His love is an initiating love on our behalf. He loved us first. Verse 11, let's continue. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That ought, that word ought, I love that it's in here because ought is a moral obligation. God has morally obligated you and I to love one another. Because Jesus saved us, we are obligated to love. It's just really cut and dry. There's no reason to expound on that anymore. It's a moral obligation. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You may not see him, but he lives in you if you've received the love of Jesus and you are passing it on to other people. The invisible God made manifest in the world, inserting himself into human history, well, that's one reality, right? That's, that's astounding enough. We go, wow, really, that happened. But then you think about, we are his body. We're the body of Christ. We get to manifest his love. And his love is being perfected in us. But that's a, that's a plural us. That's not an individualistic me. And this is, I think, one of the biggest downfalls and blind spots in Western Christianity, especially in America in the 21st century, is that we read everything in the New Testament through the lens of me, me, the individual, instead of us, the corporate body, the corporate entity. The, the, the importance of this corporate identity and reality of the local church uh, in, in manifesting Jesus in any given community is something that just cannot be overstated. We don't talk about it enough, really. We don't talk about it enough. So this is the point here. His love is perfected in us, not being perfected in me as I go off by myself in my boat on the lake on Sunday and skip out of church, not being perfected in me as I choose to sit home and engage in my hobbies instead of being with the body of Christ. His love is perfected in us corporately together. And by this, verse 13, we know that we abide in him and he in us 
because he's given us of his spirit. Now, this is a big deal. The spirit, this idea that the spirit indwells every believer in Jesus. Did you realize that the spirit coming to live in every person who has faith in Christ is proof of God's love? It's proof that he would, he would send the third person of the Trinity to indwell those who respond to the gospel with faith. It's, this is a, I, I teach this retreat every once in a while. I've done it about four times now. It's called Pneumatology 101. The word pneuma in Greek is the word for spirit or breath of God. And um, so pneumatology is the area of theology that deals with the Holy Spirit. And in that retreat, I talk at length about the Holy Spirit being the deposit on our inheritance. That it's a, it's a non-refundable deposit. And so uh, Paul would say it this way, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Did you catch that order? You heard the word of truth, and you believed Here's the next thing that happens. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When do we acquire possession of it? When, well, when we die. When we stand before God or if we make it until the return of Jesus, we'll, we'll receive the fullness of our inheritance at that point. And until then, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee and we're sealed in the Spirit 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says basically the same thing to the Corinthian church. He says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and who has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's a guarantee. It's like earnest money on a house purchase. You say, man, we really... Uh, we, we intend to buy this house from you. And then the house owner says, yeah, but I have other people looking, other people interested. How do I know that you're really serious about ponying up the, the money for the house? And then you put down earnest money. You say, well, we're going we're gonna to put down $5,000 or $10,000 here. And this money is a guarantee that we're going to follow through on the purchase of this house. And if we don't, if we fail to do that, you keep this money. That's earnest money. Right, And so this is the way God puts the spirit in the believer. It's, it's earnest money. The word is erabon in, in Greek. It's, it's not refundable. He doesn't take it back ever, ever, ever. Verse 14, and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. That's an important phrase, savior of the world. We, we talked about this before as well, but this word cosmos, the world, um, the best hermeneutical reality you can hope for in any place where you're questioning the, the word usage and, well, it doesn't mean this or this other thing, is to have the same author use the same word in the same writing. So, so you have John using it. And you go, Well, it'd be great if I could go to the Gospel of John and find him using that word. But it'd be even better if he was using it again here in 1 John in the same letter and we could get the context of that word a little bit more clear. And that's exactly what we have here in 1 John because this is uh, cosmos uh, means world, but it's not, as some have, uh, some have put out there, that what it means is just some kinds or some... Some of all kinds or all types of people in the world. But that's not what it means. In fact, 1 John 5, 19, we'll see this when we get to it in a, in a week or two, that the cosmos lies under the sway 
of the evil one. Now that cannot mean some of all kinds of people lie under the sway of the evil one. It means all unbelieving people without exception lie under the sway of the evil one. And so the context of the usage of the word uh, here in even John's letter, this first letter from John, uh, points us to the fact that the atonement of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save all people. It's sufficient to save all people. Christ's death is sufficient for everyone. I think every Christian should agree that the value of Christ's atoning work is sufficient to cover over the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The issue of Christ's propitiation concerns all sin and all sinners, not just some that God has preselected as others believe. But the atonement only benefits, and this is an important distinction, it only benefits those who believe, who receive by faith Christ's sacrifice. So Christ's death is only efficacious. That word means working. It only works for those who respond in faith. And this is why it's so important that we differentiate between intent, extent, and application when we talk about the doctrine of the atonement. Now, for some of you in the room, this is brand new to you. Your, your mind's a little bit blown and so a lot more theology than you signed up for this morning. Uh, may I just say to you that I love coffee and I love talking about these things with people who are digging into the word of God. And so if that's you, uh, let's have coffee this week and let's talk about the atonement at more length. I'd love to do that with you. In the meantime, let's continue on to verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, this is the application piece, right, of the atonement. Right? This is whoever confesses, whoever believes, puts faith in Jesus as the Son of God. God now comes and lives in him, and that person now abides in God. So we look at that word confession. We go, well, what, is, what does it mean, confession? Right? Because we live in a day and an age where people, uh, you know, well, there used to be a time when people said, my word is my bond. And now people just say, well, well, just sue me. So sue me, right? Our word, our reputation bound up in the things that we say means next to nothing in our culture. So we see a word like confession and you go, well, well, that could just be lip service. No, not in John's day and not in the city of Ephesus. Understand that John is at, at this point, he's in Ephesus and context is so important here, right? Ephesus was the crown jewel of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, which, which we call Turkey today. Uh, it was a coastal port city on the west coast of Asia Minor, and it was the center of Artemis worship. Um, Artemis was uh, this goddess, this fertility goddess, and it was such a big hub that um, the, the temple was, you know, was a center of prostitution and, and a sex cult. And then they were making so much money, people were bringing in so much money to offer up to Artemis uh, that the, the curates, the priests there, recognized that they could loan that money back out and make interest on the loans. So then it became a commerce and banking center on top of a temple and a, and a sex cult. So this is, this is the, the, the place where... The Ephesians are trying to establish a church and, and established Christianity here in Asia Minor. 
Um, and this is the culture that John is speaking into uh, about confessing Jesus as the Son of God and the only means by which a person can be saved. So like, keep that in mind. This is a big confession and, and the inevitability of the rejection that comes with that confession culturally, right? So, so we see that word confession. It, it's a big deal in John's context. Uh, verse 16, so we have come to know and, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So, so there's a distinction to be made here as well. To believe God's love, which is to have faith, as opposed to a mental assent to the right information or the facts about God's love. Uh, James, in his letter, tells us that when it comes to God and what he's like, that all of the demonic realm, every demon has all the right facts about God. And they believe those facts. They believe them to be true. But it terrifies them. They, they quake. They, they tremble at the thought of God. There's, there's not a being in the universe apart from the Trinity who knows God's word better than Satan. Have you ever thought of it like that? Have you ever considered that reality? Satan knows God's word better than you and I do which should tell us that having the right information is not enough. Having all the right facts and getting all of them right, it's not enough. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for. It's the conviction of things that we cannot see. It's more than just the right information. It's enacting faith at a heart level to believe and embrace and trust and be assured and convicted of things that we cannot yet see. God is love. God is love. We're talking about his nature here. Can't see him. We can't see him. We can't see his love. We can see the manifestation of his love. This is important. This difference between some mental ascent versus real faith, belief. And then in verse 17, uh, John says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. This is to say that when God's love truly abides in us, we can stand in confidence on the day of judgment. This is the point back in chapter three. If you'll remember, we were talking about little children being excited about daddy coming home versus shrinking back in fear at the thought of daddy coming home. We ought to be children who are excited about that. And then in verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now this is, uh, I call this a coffee mug verse, one of the most taken out of context verses. Um, so if you don't know what a coffee mug verse is, it's uh, usually just a portion of a verse, almost always in the New Testament, although there are some in the Old. And you take it out of context, you just take that one little part of the verse that everybody knows the words to, but very few people know what it actually means, and you slap it on a coffee mug. And then you feel better about life because you've got a mug with a Bible verse on it. And, um, and this is one of those, right? This is the, um, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Well, wait a minute. Yes, we still talk about and we still encourage the fear of the Lord. That hasn't gone away. That hasn't gone away. 
this is not a removal of all fear regarding all things. I mean, we should, we're still afraid of snakes and spiders and grizzly bears and sasquatches, right? This is not, right? no, we don't fear God's wrath. We don't stand fearful of his judgment because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. That, that previous verse 17 is the context that explains verse 18, right? So, so yes, we still talk about the fear of the Lord, right? So I'll, I'll just say this. You've heard me say this before. A text without its context is a pretext for a proof text. And when you, when you go to any text in Scripture, you can go to, to the Psalms. Uh, I think it's Psalm 40 or 41. A, it starts out as the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Well, if you just take the phrase, there is no God, out of context, you go around telling people the Bible says there is no God. So you have to give a verse or a section of a verse its proper context. That's the, the, the words and the verses that come before and after that give clarity to the meaning of the text. So a text without its context is a pretext for a proof text, which is to make, make it say whatever you want it to say, right? So we have to be careful students of the word. Then verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Once again, God's initiative. If anyone says, verse 20, I love God, but that person hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the other litmus test we were working towards today. It's simple logic, really. God is unseen, so, so any person could say about something that no one can see and empirically verify, yeah, I love God. How do you empirically verify that? You can't. But God set it up in such a way that the love that a person who claims to love God, their love must manifest also by loving people. This is the way he set it up. This is the way he designed it. That if you're really receiving the love of God and he's initiated towards you in that way, you've received the love, you put your faith in Jesus, you're a new creation, then that will manifest. It will necessarily manifest by your love for people. It's tangible proof of the validity of one's claim to love God. And that's why the two go hand in hand. We love God and then we love people. And of course, the next natural progression and outworking of both of those realities is that a person will live generously. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to say the mantra. We love God. We love people. We live generously. And this is the command, verse 21, that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so this commandment is the summation of everything we've covered here. It's not just an indicative that we will love as proof of God's work in us. It's also an imperative that we must love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do with this truth? How how does this reality manifest in us and through us and among us as God's people? I want to give you this morning four very quick and simple ways that God's love must manifest in the church. Must, not an option, not an option. Four ways. Number one, God's love must manifest in proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel is the first and most essential manifestation of God's love. If you had the cure to AIDS and cancer, and only ever kept it to yourself, how loving would that be? Think about it for just a minute. How loving would that be to keep something of that magnitude that could be a benefit to that many people who are dying and perishing, 
and you would keep it selfishly unto yourself. That's reprehensible. And we have something in the gospel that is infinitely of greater value and of more importance and of greater effect than the cure to AIDS and the cure to cancer. We have the gospel which gives people eternal life in Christ Jesus when they respond in faith. How selfish. If we love God, if we love God and we love people, we must proclaim the gospel. That's number one. Number two, God's love must manifest in the church by building disciples. You know, it's this crazy thing in Matthew 19. At the end of his ministry, before he went to the cross, Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, and he, he implicitly gave it to us as well. The Great Commission says this in Matthew. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And, and I'm with you, even until the ending of the age. Go Go, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, right? So we go build disciples. It's spiritual parenting. Those people who come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel, they hear the truth of Jesus, they have to be discipled. We have to help people grow towards Christ's likeness. It is one of the primary expressions of God's love that he doesn't leave everyone in a state of new baby believer, but he grows them. This is what Paul, John just said, excuse me, in, in this section, he says, God's love's being perfected in us. We're growing in it. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to build disciples. Here's number three. God's love must manifest in the church by developing leaders. We have to be investing in people who will innovate, who will lead God's people in the years to come. That, that really is a very significant way in which we care for everyone in the body of Christ because those leaders will impact them and, and catalyze and stimulate growth in others for generations to come. I'm not always going to be the pastor of Emmaus Road Church. Someday I'll die. My meat pump in my chest that runs on donuts and peanut butter and jelly is going to stop beating. And I'll go be with Jesus and someone else will be the pastor. There have to be other people coming up through the ranks that are leaders that are being developed if we're going to love the body well. And then here's number four, uh, multiplying churches. The single most effective way to reach the loss in any context is to plant churches. It's, to, it's just proven. It's statistically verifiable. And so this is a cycle that, re, that, that renews itself again and again. We proclaim the gospel People come to faith in Jesus, and so then we, we build disciples. And then those disciples from among them raise up leaders who we're developing in their leadership. And then those leaders go on, and they multiply churches. Those churches reach new people with the gospel, because that's the most effective way to do it. And those people who respond to the gospel are being built into disciples from among them are coming, developing leaders, and then those leaders are multiplying churches. And the cycle goes on and on. And this is the impact that we have at Emmaus Road in the years ahead, that we will be part of this continuation of this cycle in the region and in the world. And so here's the argument. Here's the summation of John's argument from this section of First John. Uh, we, we, everything we covered today mounts up something like this. Here, here we go. God's love is manifest most evidently in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the one who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial, substitutionary death for the sins of mankind. 
God was the one who initiated this plan to demonstrate his love for his creation, particularly for that segment which is made in his image, humanity. And for those among humanity who respond to this reality in faith, the very next proof that God graciously gives of his love is to put the Holy Spirit into that person forever, a down payment on deposit of a future inheritance whereby that person will be glorified and will be with the triune Godhead forever and ever. But one must believe in faith, not simply assent to some mental understanding or give a nod to some facts concerning Jesus and salvation. When there is faith and new birth in a human heart, God sets about perfecting his love for that individual and also corporately as individuals engage in faith families called local churches, expressing that new birth and faith and love together. So fear of judgment is removed when someone understands what it is to be a child of God and then adopted into his family. So then we walk in courage. We walk in faith while we're in this world, regardless of what befalls us, because we know that this world is not our home. This is not the end. And we will be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Are you excited about that? I know I am. I know I am. Lord Jesus, would you come soon? That's our prayer. And until you do, even if it's a lifetime, even if it's more than several lifetimes from now, and I don't think it will be, but if it is, Lord, would you give us the unction by your spirit to to be perfected in love and to display the reality of uh, the change in us by the spirit of God. We want to love people and we want to love God, love people, live generously. Lord, help us to do that for the glory of your name, that we proclaim the gospel, that we build disciples, that we develop leaders and multiply churches, all for the glory of your name, all in an expression of our love for you and our love for people as we live generously. God, would you give us the grace to do these things, the resources, the power, the strength, the wisdom, all for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.